Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, August the 3rd, 2023. As always, I'm not as always, but usually I'm talking to you from San Francisco, just back from a, an East Coast swing. All the news in San Francisco, as so often, is about Twitter, or what was formerly known, the internet company formerly known as Twitter, now increasingly known as X, a big X, was taken down from their roof a couple of days ago. Uh, the neighbors objected. Uh, neighbors are always objecting to stuff in San Francisco. And of course, this quote-unquote, rebranding of Twitter as X um, has raised a lot of controversy. Lots of people trying to explain it. New York Times has a wonderful photograph of a little Twitter bird um, with a huge X graffiti on it. A lot of people object. A lot of people are very unhappy with what uh, Elon Musk is doing and, and what indeed we should call Twitter now uh, and what he's trying to do with X in terms of transforming it into some huge Wall Street play. One person who I know has some very strong feelings on Twitter is an old friend of mine, a Twitter friend, in fact, Bethan Patrick. Uh, Bethan Patrick, we first met about 12 or 13 years ago on Twitter. She was incredibly or is, remains incredibly visible. She um, has... Uh, uh, over 2,000, uh, 200,000 followers as um, at the book maven. Uh, and she's joining us from her home in Virginia. Uh, Bethan, do you remember your first tweet? It's like rather asking someone uh, their first kiss. It is. It's a very personal memory, Andrew. Glad to be here again. And I do remember my first tweet. It was in 2009. I joined in 2008, but I did not actually hit the keyboard until March 2009. So uh, I remember a lot about that because I remember how relatively few people there were on Twitter at the time and how friendly it was and welcoming people were. Don't get me wrong. There were some troublemakers from the beginning, always, you know, trolls going to troll. But it was a place that you could find a lot of great cultural discourse, like the real kind of discourse, back and forth conversation. Well, a little Twitter bird has given the secret away. I have the link um, from March the 10th, <laughs> 2009. You're RTing the LA Times books. You're a also, I know a long-term book critic at the LA Times. You wrote Bookish, Mar Bookish March Madness Returns. The 2009 tournament of books at the Morning News has begun. What do you remember about March 2009? Does it seem in broader terms than just Twitter a kind of innocent moment <laughs> in our 21st century history, Bethan? In so many ways. I mean, we had all just been through this horrible recession, right? This horrible time in our financial history. But at the same time, we had not been through um, a certain administration that we've all lived through now. We had not 
begun to experience climate change the way we have now. And so it was a more innocent time. It certainly was for me. And a couple of things about the tweet specifically uh, that I'll tell you before I tell you a little bit more about who I was and what I was doing is I was not writing for the LA Times book section at the time. So I think that's really kind of like wonderfully serendipitous that that was my first tweet. I know that I had been a judge for the morning news either the year before, or maybe I was a judge the year after, but I always respected that the tournament of books that the morning news puts, put, puts on. Um, I loved the rooster. And so I really thought this is a great thing to do. I love the fact that we can lift up other people's links and activities and actually help them get some more PR. It was, that was what it was sort of like for me at the time. I wasn't as inside the literary community as I am now, although I was still working in books and publishing. Uh, Bethann, you, you said earlier, we had all been through the Great Recession. That way of thinking about things we had all been through mm -hmm. and you noted that we hadn't at that point been through a certain presidency that began in 2016 whose name we won't mention that's today. right um do you think that phrase we had all been through that notion of living a collective history uh or communal history was that something that twitter created do you think you you would have used that kind of language back in 2009? It's really interesting. I think that I would have because from, and forgive me anyone if I get the dates wrong, I'm thinking way back from 2003 to 2007, I was the editor of the books channel at AOL. Remember when? Uh, and so I had been there when we were starting to talk about something, we, we'd already started to talk about blogs. Blogs were getting more and more popular and gaining a lot of traction. But we were also at AOL talking about something we called Web 2.0 at the time. And Web 2.0, which Andrew Keene is very familiar with because he is the internet expert, seriously, um, was the move to, oh, we don't just have to have experts on here. People might be creating content themselves. And it was sort of the precursor to social media. Um, people were starting to see in 2006 and 2007 that pretty soon we were all going to be spending a, a lot more time with our communities online. Um, in 2005, the joke around the offices is that some of us could join the Facebook and some of us couldn't. It depended at the time on what college or university you'd attended. But by 2006, 2007, when I left, um, everyone was pretty much on Facebook and we knew that there was more to come. It's interesting, Bethann, that you were the uh, a book critic on on AOL. Um, do you think of AOL and those early notice boards in the 90s, were they social media or were they pre-social media? You know, in some ways, I really actually think that they were social media, Andrew, because what we're seeing now, and I know we're talking about Twitter or 
X or whatever it is, the um, social media platform formerly known as Twitter, as you said, people are going back to looking for things like blogs and Substacks and Medium and um, newsletters where they can talk amongst themselves. They can find some other people who have similar interests. And those AOL message boards, oh my goodness, they were hopping. I know still some people who were on the thriller message board uh, for writers at, at AOL in the 90s and early 2000s. And that community, they don't forget each other. They don't forget what they had. It was very much the kind of camaraderie that when Twitter was going well, many of us felt we had there. Bethann, the next big thing in tech, as you know, as well as I, is, is AI. Writers have very strong feelings about this. There's a lot of resistance, although one or two, like Stephen Marsh, think it's a good thing for writers. Going back to 2009, do you think writers had a particular resistance or resonance with Twitter? Do you remember that? You, you know a lot of writers. You're central mm -hmm. in that community. I mean, it is, of course, or it was a, a platform that allowed you to express yourself in words. Absolutely. And I think that is why so many writers, authors, literary people, um, and anyone in book publishing found Twitter such a great place to hang out. It wasn't about your appearance. It wasn't about products necessarily, at least not at first. It was about your words. And you only had 140 characters. So how witty could you be in those 140 characters? And those of us who really enjoy... I'm not going to claim to be good at repartee, but I will say that I love it and I love banter. And Twitter was a place where you could find really smart people to banter with 24-7. Anytime you wanted, you could get a conversation going. Some conversations dropped off. Some people never responded to you. But I have made lifelong friendships and professional associations from the years I've spent on Twitter. I wouldn't trade them for anything. Um, I, I want to say, even though you might ask me this later, but I've, I know a couple who met on Twitter and have been married for several years and are really happy. Uh, I know all kinds of things that have happened, have happened on Twitter, you know, business plans started, think some things that succeeded, some that failed, but it's real stuff that happens on Twitter. It's not just what we see now. Um, some of the the nastiness and the flatness um, and the, you know, just one-sidedness of arguments. Twitter was a place where people actually made connections. So in a sense, it's a history of the early 21st century, for better or worse, particularly the 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 uh, the glory years of 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012. They were glory years in a way, and those were. It is. I, I'll never forget. Um, I'm I'm going to. I don't want to say anything incorrect, but was it the Arab Spring that? was on Twitter live. It was our first use that we saw on Twitter 
of something happening in real time. And well, people... certainly there were revolutions in Egypt, in Libya. Yeah, thank you, uh, thank you. Syria, I know, I, I know, I'm I'm getting uh, my historical events mixed up. I apologize, but this was really, really incredible, and it was an amazing use of Twitter to see that people on the ground watching something happen could use Twitter, yes, to report things, but also to help people in the midst of conflict and disaster and trouble to know where to go to find shelter or safety or refuge. And over the years, I think that was one of the most powerful ways I saw any kind of social media used. Um, it, you don't have that kind of immediacy with Facebook or Instagram. Um, with Twitter, it was someone saying very quickly, there is an uprising here. You know, if you're in the middle of it, here's where you can go. Or if you're in the middle of it, this is what to expect. Very, um, very different. And it does, Andrew, as you said, make those early years of Twitter an incredible archive, a historical archive. You've been very public, Bethan, on your struggle with mental illness. Uh, your last book, you were on the show talking about it, Life B, Overcoming Double Depression. You, you speak, at least in these early years, as a place of community. How does the early narrative from 2009 the first few years of, of being on Twitter, how does that um, connect with your own mental health? Did you see an improvement, a decline, or are they entirely unrelated? I don't think they're entirely unrelated. For one thing, I was in the middle of still, I was still building my career. In 2009, I had an internet broadcast show called The Book Studio for a PBS affiliate here in DC, WETA. And I got such amazing interviews with authors, but in 2009, no one really knew what internet broadcasting was. So it was very difficult to build up an audience for the show, even though it was beautifully produced in the, you know, studios with the right kinds of cameras and crew and everything. But I was also blogging for barnesandnoble.com um, on a corporate blog called Center Stage. And so every week there would be a famous author, a famous novelist usually, but sometimes nonfiction as well. And so I was seeing these different kinds of media while I was becoming accustomed to social media, to very, very quick social media. And one of the things that I saw is the dopamine hits, right? So here I was, I had been experiencing severe depression, um, severe chronic depression, and sometimes episodes of major depression. And being on Twitter actually helped that for a time because I was talking on it so much. I was spending so much time on it that I could write on getting a response. You know, I could click and refresh and there was someone, you know, ready to chat with me or ready to share an idea or there was something I could laugh about, et cetera. Um, as the years went by, of course, I don't know much about the chemistry here, but I'm sure your brain does 
to a certain extent, you know, want more or react less. And as the years went on and I had some personal difficulties and also more experience of depression, I found that I could go on Twitter and say, this is what's happening for me. This is what's real. I am having a terrible day. I would love some support. And I would hear back from people. And some of those people who reached out early on have, again, become extremely close, real life, long term friends. We've done a lot of shows, uh, Bethan, on the relationship, imagined or otherwise, between social media and uh, mental health or mental illness. We did one with the FT uh, reporter, Hannah Murphy, who had a long piece in the Financial Times a few months ago on teens and social media. Also one with the doctor, uh, Dr. Nicholas Carderas, who believes that social media is driving our mental health crisis. It seems as if the research at least shows that in about 2012, uh, Bethann, mental illness amongst adolescents, particularly female adolescents, fell through the floor. Thinking back to 2012, was there something that happened on social media? Was this just the inevitable outcome of a, of a, a kind of dopamine hangover that you touched on earlier? I do think it's partly the dopamine hangover. I also think it's partly the idea that you give tweens and adolescents a tool and they can use it for good or they can use it for very, very bad. And I think by 2012, we had seen such a rise in internet bullying. And that was happening on Facebook. It was happening on Twitter. Um, and especially at that point, you know, we didn't have um, as much. We didn't have TikTok. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when Snapchat started. But because I also was raising daughters myself at the time, I knew that there was all kinds of stuff going on. You know, sometimes it was almost a kind of... Uh, what's the word for it? These teens were, you know, blackmailing each other. Oh, you know, I'll put um, up that picture I took at the party last weekend so your parents can see it. Or teens ganging up on each other, you know, a whole bunch of boys or girls, you know, just saying awful, awful things to a single kid. So I saw it at the time that I was learning about how to negotiate these places too. And I do agree with Murphy and um, the good doctor about the detrimental effects of this on teens. They are, on one hand, I want to say, in defense of teens, Andrew, a lot of parents say, put down your phone, stop texting your friends. And I think the texting can be good. It can be a way of keeping in touch, of communicating. You know, back in, for instance, Jane Austen's time, right? The mail came how many times a day? You could send a note to someone and get a response, you know, two hours later. Uh, texting for kids can be difficult, but it can also be a great way of maintaining friendships in a time where we're letting our kids play outside less. We're letting our kids get together alone less sometimes. That said, I did see in, in I would say, 
2011 to about 2015, huge uptick in the misuse of social media among teenagers for really, really um, unkind purposes. And in that period, 2011 to 2015, I'm not sure how old your girls were, but do you remember particular events and how that impacted your own uh, your own advice or perhaps rules, laws uh, within it the family did. about really- how your girls could and couldn't use social media? Well, this is a little bit later, and I'm trying to remember, let's see, my 26-year-old, um, so this would have been when she was, so about 10 years ago. Yeah, so it is the right time period, but it's not Twitter. Yeah, two, yeah. Two, 2013. Exactly. Um, they didn't like Twitter at the time. Um, all of them were on Instagram, but what they all had was something they called a Finstagram. And a Finstagram was basically the hidden Instagram that your parents didn't know about. So uh, a kid would say, mom, please can I be on Instagram? And they'd make an account and make it look really pretty. Like, oh, here's some pictures of my birthday with my grandma. But then they would somehow either you know, kids who didn't have enough parental supervision or kids who had a friend who knew how to manipulate things would create a Finstagram. And that is where they would post the pictures of them, you know, drinking a handle on the Metro or, uh, you know, at a party doing something, you know, really unsavory, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so I found out about our younger daughter's Finstagram when she decided to access it from my phone and didn't log out. And so I got to see the whole thing and I thought, okay, this is what they're doing now. All right, we're going to shut this down. (laughs) uh, But I do remember that very clearly. And I also remember very clearly how the trends among social media sites change, you know? So Facebook is everything. And then, no, we hate Facebook. We only go on Twitter. No, Insta is it, and so on and so forth, all the way to TikTok. You're um, an expert on narratives, a book reviewer, both fiction and nonfiction. Is there almost a conventional narrative to the history of social media, the initial promise, the glory years, the crises, the decline? I love that question because, you know, some people say there's only one plot ever, right? Which is a stranger comes to town. That's the only plot because it always happens and you can make anything out of it. But one of the narrative arcs that is very, um, very common is the rags to riches and then riches to rags story. So it's, you know, um, you, you know, start out low, you go up high, low again, you know, but so, so on and so forth. And each of these sites has had its own version of rags to riches and back to rags again, and then sometimes back to riches. So they do follow narrative uh, forms and they do show that when you think you've got it all figured out, somehow humans are going to make a mistake. 
We're going to try to do too much. We're going to try to control too much of the market share. We're going to try to change the identity of something that doesn't need to be changed. And so I do see a lot of great narrative play in the stories of these big social media companies. So it's it's an all you all too human story. The stranger yeah. comes to town. Is that stranger Elon Musk? Uh, you mm. recently announced that you're leaving Twitter. You're getting you're packing up your stuff. You may keep your <laughs> your at sign, but uh, August eighth in a few days will be your last day. You're going a big giveaway. Um, I am. Do you remember the first, the moment you heard Musk was buying Twitter? Was it? Um, something that immediately you thought, wow, I can't stay on this if he's the owner. I remember when he bought it, we had all been sort of on the edge of our office chairs waiting to see if it was going to go through, if he was going to be allowed to make this. And we kept hoping that it wouldn't happen. And when it did happen, at first it seemed like, oh, well, you know, it's Twitter. I'm going to stay because why let Elon Musk take away something that's been so good for so many of us? And so I vowed to stay um, various people. For instance, um, my good friend and um, fellow critic, uh, Ron Charles of The Washington Post, uh, I had convinced him to get on Twitter and he was wonderful on it for years and years. And he left uh, I'm not sure how many months ago, but he finally said, I can't you know, stay on this with Musk in charge. Um, I thought, well, if Ron's leaving, something's really up, something's really wrong. And then I started seeing more and more authors leave and writers that I really loved and whose tweets made a difference in my day or my week. I Still thought I'd hang on, but it's this rebranding, Andrew, is very disturbing to me. Um, I may have mentioned this on a, one of the shows before, but I lived in Berlin for several years a while back. And in Berlin, you can never forget um, what happened in the Nazi era. And it is so clear to me that a rebranding of the sort that has happened has really fascistic overtones. And it is not, it's not an accident. You know, Twitter could have stayed what it was. There what there's something behind this. And it may be purely financially related, but I have a feeling it has to do with some other things that Musk is involved with and interested in. That doesn't mean that I'm claiming he is going to become, you know, our overlord or dictator. I just thought this is not a place that uh, I belong anymore. I can find other places, some of the new social media sites, or even just finding new ways to connect with Instagram and Facebook. And look, I'm just going to say this. I, I said this to someone the other day. Uh, a friend said, oh, I just can't go to such and such because of Zuck. And I said, really? Do you think that any of these places are entirely free of some kind of, you know, person like Jack or like Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, none of them is all rainbows and unicorns. It's just a matter of saying, I can, you know, I can 
deal with this, but I can't deal with that. And I will also say this for people listening. I am keeping my Twitter page up, even though I will not be tweeting, because if you delete your account, then you also delete access to your name and someone else can take it. Not Beth Ann Patrick. I've never been able to get Beth Ann Patrick on Twitter. Someone's sitting on that. But I didn't want someone else to be able to come on Twitter as the book maven. And finally, uh, Beth Ann, you mentioned you're looking at some of the other post-Twitter platforms. Mm -hmm. well, you, you mentioned Web2 before, Web2.0. Yeah. A lot of people are talking about Web3 style platforms, yep. decentralized like Mastodon, Blue Sky. Some people, I'm sure you've come across Jeff Jarvis, another figure mm -hmm. like you, ubiquitous on social media. He, he's an old friend. He, he was on the show recently. He still believes in the social potential of the Internet. Do you think that platforms like Mastodon, Blue Sky and some of these other innovative decentralized networks, not threads so much. Can they, can we have a, a rise and a fall and then the rise again of social media? I really hope so. I found Mastodon very difficult. I did create an account there and I thought, oh, I, I'm not finding the kind of community there that I want. Um, I have actually found threads to be something that seems to grow very quickly because of course you get your Instagram followers as followers once they sign up. So that's a little clever thing they're doing. Blue Sky is much, much smaller and I am on Blue Sky. I am really going to keep a watch on that because a lot of people I know and love appreciate its small feeling. It feels like early Twitter in some ways. It's not as easy to find people or to find topics because hashtags aren't operational there. And it's only on your device. It's not on your laptop. One of the things about Twitter that made it so fast and funny is that, you know, everyone had it on their laptop or their computer. And so they were supposed to be working, but they were procrastinating by coming onto Twitter. So it is a difference in um, device. And we'll see if it migrates over or if it stays. Maybe, you know, people are really using phones and um, tablets so much more now. We will see social media improve there rather than on the um, full laptop screen. And I wonder, given the popularity of platforms like Substack, whether we're returning to the age you began in, in the AOL uh, network, in the, um, in the notice boards of AOL. Do you yeah. think that maybe social media will seem like just a blip ultimately and that we will return to posting on, on blog-like platforms like, um, like Substack? You know, I'm really thinking about this because I mentioned the um, author boards on AOL message boards. They were really hopping. There was also a site called Readerville um, that was just incredible. Also, The Well. Was that at Salon? Yeah, The Well was the original. Uh, yeah. Kevin Kelly, who's been on the show, is a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, I, this I was the that. original platform, the, the, the notice board platform that 
really in many ways invented the social in the internet. Exactly, exactly. So I do think that with some of these places like Substack and with people sending out newsletters and then connecting things through Substack, uh, I was talking to a young woman earlier today about working on a podcast together. And she said, oh, it's so great that there's a Substack you have because that's a great way to, to distribute you know, podcasts. And I thought, you know, she's right. People are going to be making their own little ecosystems of expertise. And I think that may be the next move. On the message boards, it was everyone coming together and finding out who was an expert. Now we're going to have people who have developed expertise saying, here, I'm pushing this out to you.